The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, your climate podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your half faxed host, Chelsea Henderson, happy to have one shot of the vaccine in my arm and the other scheduled for the end of April. I bring this up because today we are celebrating all the science. I'm pleased to share with you my conversation with one of the founders of the organization Science Moms. As if you couldn't tell by the name, Science Moms is a nonpartisan nonprofit group created by scientists and moms. I really can't think of a better combination. As you will hear from Dr. Tracy Holloway, she and the other scientist moms created this group to help mothers who are concerned about their children's planet, but aren't confident in their knowledge about climate change or how they can help. They aim to demystify climate science and motivate urgent action to protect our children's futures. Dr. Holloway is a scientist, a professor, and of course, a mom. Dr. Holloway is the 2017 to 2021 Gaylord Nelson Distinguished Professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, jointly appointed in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies and the Department of Atmospheric and Ocean Sciences. She serves as the team lead for the NASA Health and Air Quality Applied Sciences team, working on air quality management and public health. She's also a co-founder of and the first president of the Earth Science Women's Network and was the first ever recipient of the MIT C3E Award in Education and Mentoring, a Stanford University Leopold Leadership Fellow, and was awarded the 2018 UW-Madison Undergraduate Research Student Mentoring Award. She's pretty awesome, listeners. Whether you know a mom or you are a mom, I really think you're going to love this episode. I'm super excited to turn to this conversation with Dr. Holloway, but first, I have a very important message from Bill Lemon, a member of our community, to Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers, the ranking Republican member of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. I'm Bill Lemon, a clean energy investment banker and eco-right voter from your home state of Washington. I think it's important that conservatives lead on climate change. That's why I'm encouraged by the initiative you're showing as the ranking member of House Energy and Commerce Committee. The energy package that passed in December of 2020 was the largest federal commitment to solving climate change in history. Keep up the good work on making climate progress. Let's show the rest of the country why Washington has some of the cleanest and cheapest power in the union. And now, my conversation with Dr. Tracy Holloway. Welcome back, listeners. As promised, I'm in conversation right now with Dr. Tracy Holloway, who I discovered through my rampant covering of the news. I read about science moms, and I just knew right away, Tracy, that I had to have you on the show. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Chelsea. It's really exciting to be here today. So I thought you could just sort of jump right in. You're a scientist and you're a mom. So explain what it is about these two parts of your life that you decided to bring together to co-found Science Moms. Uh, Right. Well, I've been a scientist for about 25 years. I studied applied math in college, and I didn't know if I'd go into business or accounting. Uh, And then You know, the more I I had a summer internship at NASA, and that's really what opened my eyes to the idea that math was a good background to go on into science. 
And, um, you know, I've just built a career in science that I've loved. And one of the things I love is answering questions and trying to get to the bottom of important issues, uh, but also communicating to the public. I'm at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm a publicly funded educator and researcher. And, you know, I've always felt like my role is just to tell the truth and answer questions and try to make information valuable. So I've been doing that for much longer than I've been a mom. I've been a mom for about 11 years. I have a sixth grader named Peter and a one-year-old, almost one-year-old named Henry. Um, so for a long time, I really viewed those as two separate parts of my life. I, during the day, I'm on my computer doing work and at home, I'm feeding my kids and helping with homework. So um, it was really exciting to be invited to be part of the Science Moms organization, because for the first time, it was really taking these two parts of my life, these two important parts of my life, and bringing them together. And the more I thought about it, I realized that even though to me, these are two different roles, in fact, they're both coming from the same place, which is trying to, you know, do right, do the right thing, make the right decisions, um, you know, help people today, whether it's my own kids or my students or, you know, the public getting information out there, um, but also trying to think about what the future is going to be like. And, you know, in my role, uh, thinking about climate and air pollution and public health and energy for my work, I'm often thinking about what the world is going to be like in 2050 or 2080. And those numbers are so abstract but now that I have a baby who was born in 2020, you know, he'll be 30 in 2050. So it makes some of these big picture abstract issues a lot more personal. And, you know, I really feel like actually they aren't two different issues. They're, they're both just um, coming from the same place. So I know that one of your jobs, both, you know, as you probably do this as a mom, you said you're helping with homework. I am super lucky that my kid's homework is too hard for me to help him with, uh, except his writing. I can, I can be a good um, editor for his written word, but, um, and I think this gets into a little bit about the mission behind science moms. You, there's a way to take science and to demystify it or to make it digestible for people and so how much of that, I'm sure to, as, uh, you know, on a scale, you're doing that for your sixth grader as well as for your students, but how, you know, how do you find that process where you take really complex issues and then break them down to something that, you know, a mommy might meet on the playground who doesn't know anything about climate science can understand? Yeah, that is, that is a great question. And you know, I'd say that um, one of the funny things about the way we train scientists here in America, probably around the world, is that, you know, you go from being, you know, coming out of high school or coming out of college and being interested in all these things and able to talk in a normal way. And you get deeper and deeper and deeper into this sub-community of experts within experts within experts where you're really expected to talk in jargon and expected to you know, describe things mathematically. And so actually there's sort of an unlearning process that you have to do to be able to take the kernel of knowledge, the technical idea and kind of 
roll it back to what you would have wanted to hear before you had started a PhD. And, you know, to me, I know I talk to my mom every day and I have lots of friends who aren't in science. And so to me, this idea of being a good communicator, I mean, again, it's, it's a personal issue. It's not just something I do for work, but I have benefited from a lot of training programs on how to talk about science, how to take big ideas and make them accessible. And I think, again, because I both do research and teach classes, my students are always keeping me honest and making sure that if I don't explain something clearly, they're going to call me out on it. So when it comes to climate change, um, one of the things that I always like to do is to make it clear, you know, what do we know? And to make it as relevant and personal as possible. And, you know, one of the things that sometimes I say is that, you know, when you're driving your car and you fill it up with gas and you drive hundred miles and your gas tank is empty, well, you know, it went somewhere and where it went was into the atmosphere. And so this idea that if we burn fuel, it goes into the air. Uh, this is something we've all had uh, personal experience with. And so it doesn't have to be sort of abstract and esoteric you know, it's something that, yep, I understand that. Uh, I filled it up and now it's empty. And so, you know, I think this sort of the next step is, okay, well, now that it's in the atmosphere, where does it go then? And one of the things that is, uh, you know, not so intuitive is that carbon dioxide, which we're concerned about for climate, actually stays in the atmosphere for over a hundred years. And that is so different than many of the pollutants like smoke from a barbecue, that stays in the atmosphere for, I don't know, a couple minutes, a couple hours, maybe a couple days, like those forest fires that you, you know, see on the news with the smoke moving across the oceans or, but smoke just does not stay in the atmosphere very long. Carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere for a really, really long time. And so I think that, you know, this idea of trying to connect these abstract ideas about climate with the personal experience, the lived experience of whoever I'm talking to, to me, that's one of the things that I try to do. Um, and, you know, like you said, it doesn't matter who you're talking to, whether a sixth grader or uh, college students or, um, you know, your audience here on the podcast. Right, for sure. And I think that's, you know, communication is such a key point of everything that we collectively do because. If, you know, for a lot of our audience and the people they're communicating with, I like to think that our audience gets the science, could maybe at least um, at a basic level talk about it in a barbecue, you know, in the back backyard barbecue back when we used to have those, um, or, you know, to, to some greater extent too, and that they use this podcast for help in speaking to those who might be hesitant or might be resistant to the idea of climate change. And it is all about how we communicate it, right? And so people don't like to feel dumb, right? Or they don't like to feel talked down to. And, you know, I think it's really important to kind of meet people where they're at and find that that common connection or that personal experience as the connecting point. And I love that example about the gas tank. It goes somewhere, doesn't just disappear. And, you know, that's a great visual. Or if somebody is, um, you know, really likes fishing and they might be seeing changes to the places where they fish, either, um, you know, the way the the abundance of fish or the, the wildlife around 
the area. If somebody is, you know, we have so many outdoor enthusiasts who listen to the podcast. And so you might find that temperatures are different or the climate is different or the foliage is changing at different times. And those are all things that people can relate to. And then to learn that there might be a climate component to that, or there is a climate component to that makes it feel less abstract, right? I mean, climate change, global warming doesn't feel like something that impacts us day to day, but it really does. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think everybody is coming at this from a different perspective and different things that are important to them. And whether that is, you know, they're interested in how much they're paying for their electricity bill, or they're interested in what's happening with the winter snowfall or, you know, farming or fishing. You know, I think that um, it's one of the reasons why, to me, this is such a exciting and important topic to work on because it is important to so many people, everybody in different ways, um, but it's also something that because it's become controversial, um, that there isn't as much uh, opportunity for people to have access to nonpartisan, objective, reliable sources. And I think that's one of the things that attracted me to the Science Moms program is that that is their mission. They are nonpartisan, they wanna be objective. And when I looked over the material that on the website, which they had us all review, you know, I felt like, yep, I would say all of those things to my students. I would say all of those things to my family. And, um, and so, you know, I feel like there's a role for debate in any important topic. But, you know, I think to me, I've always felt most comfortable trying to be that middle of the road voice, somebody who can talk to two sides. I've been, I'm a middle child. And, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm used to that. Well, you're our second um, scientist that we've had on the podcast. And last fall, we talked to Carrie Emanuel from MIT. And, and I asked him this question, I'm going to bring it up with you because it's still happening. So there seems to be, we seem to be living in an era where people pick and choose what science they're going to believe. And we've seen it at least the last decade or more with climate change. I don't think it was always that way with climate change in the nineties and the early two thousands, there was more of an acceptance it seemed. And then things really pivoted around 2009, 2010. And now I feel like we're really seeing it with um, the coronavirus as well. And in the fall, when we talked to Dr. Emanuel, we didn't have vaccines that were all, you know, being rolled out. And now we're kind of seeing it, you know, I'm seeing people say, oh, I shouldn't have to vaccinate my kids to go to school, even though we require plenty of vaccines for our kids to go to public schools. And so what, what do you think that is about that people feel emboldened to question science like and I and I'm just going to quote Catherine Hayhoe who likes to say that gravity doesn't care whether you believe in it or not right it's still there it still exists and it's the same with climate change yeah I mean I think that it is um surprising to me how controversial a lot of aspects of science have become and you know, I guess for me, the way that I came in to studying climate, studying the atmosphere was really from a very nerdy perspective. I was studying math and I realized that math 
goes into fluid dynamics. And actually that's the same principles that help us predict the weather. They're the same principles that allow planes to fly and stay in the air. So the idea that um, fluid dynamics is um, controversial, I don't think anybody would say that it is. I mean, we all want our airplanes to stay up when we fly on vacation. And, um, but the, the ideas uh, that go into the computer models that predict hurricanes like Dr. Emanuel's expertise or uh, predict the weather um, are the same ideas that go into the models that are looking to try to forecast the climate. Will next summer be hotter or cooler? Will it be rainier or drier? Which is super important for farming, for planning, for investing, um, for so many things. And, you know, carry those out a few more years. And that's really what is um, underlying the science that goes into climate. And I think, you know, one thing that I have found um, having a lot of really valuable conversations with people who about climate from different perspectives is that, you know, sometimes there's this, this um, feeling that uh, the climate science community is trying to explain what we're already seeing, kind of like we're trying to fit a line to what we're seeing. And I think if you have the feeling, well, we're just fitting a line, well, then there could be a lot of explanations. But, but actually, that's, that really, that's not, not it. It's been for, for over 100 years. Scientists have known that carbon dioxide warms the planet. In fact, without natural carbon dioxide, the planet would probably be too cold to live on. So this idea that carbon dioxide warms the planet, it acts sort of like a blanket, keeping some of the heat that would otherwise go back into space and keeping it close to the earth. Um, and that uh, we know that, that, that more carbon dioxide then warms the planet more. And so the idea that we're seeing warming is actually um, completely consistent with what scientists have known for well over a century um, because uh, it's just took a while. I mean, we started to really see the signal in the latter part of the 20th century, but they knew before that, that it would be coming. Well, I mean, I think about lawmakers who use that terrible preface, I'm not a scientist, but, and then they kind of flip the science on their head, right? I'm not a scientist, but, and they make some observation that is meant to refute that climate change is happening. And, you know, I don't like living in this world. I want to live in a world where everyone, you know, and, and I understand there's a level of skepticism that is built into science, right? You, you need to prove that what you believe or what you're, you're working on, you know, you, you don't want somebody 10 years later to be like, oh, we just found a flaw in her theory or her model. You want to have everything airtight. So I understand that there's some internal skepticism, right? That, so that you make sure that you're not wrong, but we know you're not wrong on climate science. So how, how do we build, and maybe this is, isn't your job to do, maybe it's more our job, but how do we rebuild the trust in science? And, and maybe part of that is figuring out who, who were the actual people who were, you know, sort of refuting the science. And I think we know where some of them are and some of them are big, uh, rich corporations, but how do we, how do we rebuild that faith? And, and how do you see even right now with COVID kind of connecting, does solving COVID does making this sure that this vaccine that these vaccines work help us with our arguments on climate science? 
Well, you know, I think the first thing you said is sort of whose job is it? And I feel like it's, it's everybody's job. Anytime you have a big problem, you know, we can't just say, oh, somebody else is going to fix it. And whether that problem is climate change itself or the problem is public faith in science. And, you know, I am uh, an employee of the state of Wisconsin. I uh, feel like I have a duty and obligation to answer questions, to do work that's transparent and open and rigorous. So, you know, to me, this idea of being uh, a, a personal face, you know, I think one of the problems is like science tells us whatever, you know, the scientists say whatever. And, you know, it's hard to, in any situation, have faith in some nameless, faceless group. But, you know, scientists are just like, you just like me. I mean, we're all just people normal are, people, normal <laughs> people, and you know who really want to do good for themselves, for the humanity, for the public, for everything. You know, I think that we're um, the nice thing about science that I like is that everything really is out there and published, and the data are publicly available, so it's open to scrutiny. And scientists are so competitive, and I mean, I kind of like competition. But what that means for the public is that scientists are always trying to one up each other and and you know disagree about things. So if there's something that the scientists really you know agree on and can put it in writing, like wow, like that is really something that is accepted. And, you know, it's sort of, you were mentioning um, Dr. Hayhoe's comment that gravity is true, whether we believe it or not. You know, at this point, nobody disagrees with gravity. We can see it in our daily lives. And, um, but still it's for, for emerging science, whether it's understanding of the COVID um, pandemic or climate science or, you know, any other emerging issue, um, there is going to be some early disagreement in the scientific community, and slowly points of consensus will emerge. And I think having good messengers and making the process clear so that the public can understand, like, how was this how did you come to this conclusion? Like, how do we know that? How can I trust that? And sometimes people feel trust by feeling like they can get their questions answered or that they can relate to the person who is sharing the information, that it's a trustworthy messenger. Um, other times they wanna dig into the data themselves. Other times they wanna read competing perspectives and try to come to their own uh, conclusion. And my goal as a, as a scientist and as an educator is to try to make whatever information someone wants available. I'd say through the Science Moms program, one of the things I like is that they've been trying to boil it down into clear, um, understandable uh, take-home points. Their website is beautiful. I did not uh, make it. And uh, it really, I think, summarizes a lot of big ideas in a clear way because as much as a lot of people would like to read the original reports or dig into the data, most people, especially moms, just don't have the time to do that. So I think trying to make the information transparent, clear, trustworthy, uh, but also easy to access that you don't have to spend three hours uh, um, sorting through it unless you want to. And then there's extra resources. Well, I think on 
what you were just saying, peer review is not just a rote thing, right? When someone asks you, asks you to peer review their work, you're not just gonna be like, oh, good job, right? You really dig in, you put that competitive spirit into it, which I think there is some misconception out there, but I wanted to talk about um, messengers before I let you go. Um, and again, I just, it, it's the most important part of what we do. And and at republicen.org, we try to find the right messengers for the people who might be a little bit skeptical. And so I definitely encourage listeners, if you know somebody who could benefit from having science moms in their lives, I will link the website in our show notes. And um, and it's, I'm, I'm assuming it's sciencemoms.org, right? I think it's sciencemoms.com. Dot com. Okay. Um, but you do have resources on the website, right? So if somebody wanted to to look either for themselves or for somebody in their life who might be um, skeptical, then they can find all that information there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think something else, just I'll say it, it may not be relevant, but that I'm not getting paid at all from the Science Moms campaign. I'm doing it totally out of voluntary, but also in my role as a professor uh, at the University of Wisconsin. It feels very in line with my role as a educator, someone educating the public and, you know, making sure that science is getting put to good use. And if there was ever something that I disagreed with, with the program, I would step away from it. But so far I've been really impressed. And the other science moms are all impressive. And, you know, most of them I've known as colleagues for decades. So it's been really an honor to be part of this group. And I'm so Uh, appreciative of you and your listeners taking time to learn about the program and and all you're doing to raise awareness on climate because, you know, there's no one group or one perspective that's going to solve this problem. We need really all hands on deck. And it's, it's just a pleasure to be part of this conversation. Well, I think there's really nothing that moms can't do, right? We are all powerful. (laughs) And this last year has probably tested us more than we ever expected to be tested. And there's light at the end of the tunnel. So yeah, I, again, I was thrilled to see that combination, right? Women in science who are moms, perfect combination for that, that messenger and we will help you get the good word out there and just thank you for everything that you're doing. My son is interested in the University of Wisconsin. So if, if we get to travel again and we make it out to Madison, maybe we can grab coffee. I would love that. And now a word from our spokesperson and a climate mom, Lisa Savage. I'm a mom of three children and I live along the South Carolina coastline. I was always environmentally conscious, but I didn't take climate change seriously until my daughter came home from school telling me what she learned in science class. And then it started to make sense when I did my own research. I looked at trusted scientists and data from NASA. And then I looked in my own community and saw that although we've always had issues with uh, tropical falling systems along our coastline, never in this frequency and never in this intensity. What I also saw was something that had never happened, which is sunny day flooding along our coast. Yes, we're, we're in a low-lying area, so we do get flooding frequently, but usually it's after a, a strong rainstorm, um, and now we see it every day. And that's because water levels are rising. Um, I'm so thankful that my daughter came home and taught me what she was learning. I wasn't informed, and now I am. We should listen to our youth. 
It's their future we should fight for. Welcome back, Price. Welcome back, Chelsea. Are you energized? I am energized. I am tan because, as I joked for a couple weeks leading up to our spring break, I lathered up. I went out and got some sun, some good old vitamin D. But I'm also back and ready to podcast for the forthcoming next few weeks yet again for another long run here of the Eco Rights Beats. You know, I went to the beach for like four days and it didn't get warmer than like 47 degrees. So I'm still like super pasty, but uh, I did do some gardening this weekend. It was really like the perfect gardening weather where it wasn't so hot that, I mean, you know me, I don't really like it super hot but it was sunny and it wasn't humid and I did some transplanting and some kind of cleanup from the stuff, you know, over the winter, all the leaves and the dead, um, the dead things. I'm so technical. I'm really not a great gardener. So listeners, if you have advice for somebody who likes to pretend they have a green thumb, I am open to take your feedback. (laughs) Well, I know one thing you're also open to over the break, and that's what vaccinations is you are the last time we talked uh, <laughs> to now, now fully vaccinated. Well, Woo-hoo! now I haven't had my second one yet. So I had the Moderna, which is a um, okay. two-parter, right? Um, I mean, there, yeah. I know Pfizer's two-parter as well, but I think the Pfizer ones are closer together. And this one is a four-week window in between. So... On April 26th, I get my second dose. And then, wow, it already looks like I will be on an airplane in May (sighs) to go to Texas to pick up my son from college. And I'm just excited to get to do that because I haven't, I went with him the last time I was on an airplane was also to San Antonio to take him to admitted students weekend Mm -hmm. at Trinity um, in February of 2020. So I'm excited to go back now that he will have a year under his belt and to meet his friends because that's sort of weird. I don't know his friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's pretty exciting to get on an airplane and to go down and, and basically, I don't want to say for the first time, but I guess full first full time is he's been a student down there. So, um, you know, I still don't have a plane trip scheduled. I, we've got a car trip scheduled, actually not far, not too far from you, uh, but Williamsburg for, for June but I am still anxiously awaiting for that first plane trip. Not that I'm like jumping for joy to get on one, just still because I've there's I've still got apprehension running all through me. But at the same time, it kind of is that liberating feel of something you hadn't done in over a year. I'm just feeling a great sense of hope, right? Sure. I mean, and I know I was reading this morning that there there is a concern that people have sort of. Um, vaccine fever, right? That they're like, woohoo, I'm vaccinated. I don't need to take precautions anymore. And that's definitely not true. Um, We still need to wear masks and we still need to be like choosy. And I know three people who got vaccinated and ended up getting mild cases of COVID. So, you know, it's not 100% uh, effective. But anyway, it does feel like we're about to come out of a dark space. And maybe that's partly spring because winter felt extra tough this year. But also looking forward to the second half of our second season of the Eco Right Speaks. And, you know, we have so many guests that are kind of up in the air. They're, they've said yes, and we just have to schedule them. And so I think it's going to be a good second half of, of our second season. Yeah, I'm optimistic, too. I don't want it to, to sound like that I'm so scared, doom and gloom. It's just, you know, when, crowd, I mean, I still wear a mask into the store and... 
you know, unlike many people, I think that probably are vaccinated, some that aren't, or many that aren't, that don't wear masks and haven't since the beginning. I mean, I still wear mine, whether it's, you know, going into the grocery store or going, I mean, any kind of big public place. That has not changed, and that's not going to change for a while. Um, yeah. but I I'm, mean, they're required here still, so yeah. I, I don't know about where you are, but... Um, well, they require but, them, and they say on the on the door of, like, a store you go into, like a gas station or something like that, you know, mass face coverings required, but there ain't nobody enforcing that. So, I look, here at the end of the day, it's, it's this. It is a little over a year since this whole, really this whole brouhaha, the pandemic began, not making light of it, but the fact that we had a vaccine delivered, you know, less in easily less than a year's time is just remarkable. And it's just another opportunity. And we've done it here before. We'll do it again. I mean, just to celebrate science research in, in, you know, supporting people that are coming up with the solutions to real life, real world problems. And this is and like, the biggest yeah. one of my lifetime. Way to bring it back to the science, which is that was at the heart of today's episode. And, you know, our Tracy, Dr. Tracy Holloway, who was really fun. I really want to meet her in person mm-hmm. when that kind of thing can happen again. Yep. And, you know, there's I think about the scientists, yes, who just worked day and night to get us the vaccine. And, you know, they had been working on a vaccine. So I have a friend who's an epidemiologist who says they've been working on a coronavirus vaccine for about 10 years. So Mm -hmm. they had some research going in, but it really shows what we can do innovatively when we put our mind to it. And I would love to take that spirit and put it into climate change. Yeah, I would too. All right. Not to look back. We must have so many new people. (laughs) We can't look back. We got to look ahead because um, we got a whole lot coming. We've we've done a lot, at least in the first part of this year, season two. What do we have coming up next week? What do we have coming the remainder of this spring? Because as you and I know, before we blink, you're going to be on a plane also, but we are also going to be in the summer months here, and it's right. not going to take long. But we got a lot between now and then. So just to tease a couple of upcoming guests, we are going to feature. Um, Rocky Barker is a journal, longtime journalist from Idaho who is an expert on salmon. And for anyone that's been following this issue, um, Congressman Mike Simpson from Idaho has rolled out a really massive, like one of a kind groundbreaking plan for salmon restoration that includes some dam removals, which is not really a politically popular thing in that neck of the woods. So he's putting his neck out for the salmon for this restoration project. And Rocky's been um, reporting on this issue for a number of years. So I'm looking forward to learning more with my conver- in my conversation with him. We still have the elusive um, Senator Mike Braun, whose staff is lovely and um, continues to promise that they will get him on our, our calendar. And, you know, some of the new members also of the House are on my wish list and we have folks reaching out, helping us reach out to them, including um, Congresswoman Maria Elvira Salazar from Florida. She is in the seat that was once held by Ileana Ross Layton, who was also a climate champion. And then um, Congressman Peter Meyer from Michigan is another one who's on my dream team, so to speak, to, to have on the pod. So putting all my feelers out, listeners, if you live in 
the districts of Salazar or Meyer and you want to weigh in and recommend that your member of Congress be on our show, I bet that will help. <laughs> if you're from Indiana, same. I bet that will help, you know, get that little nudge. Um give us a little credibility, a little hometown credibility. So that's kind of what I, where my eyes are focused right now. And um, I'm just looking forward to rolling up my sleeves and getting these good voices out to our, our listeners. All right. Uh, let's roll up our sleeves and share a couple new listener, not listener, excuse me, uh, new members to Republican.org, which you can join us at Republican.org forward slash join William H in Oregon, Becky E in Utah, Eric's B in West Virginia, Philip M in Maryland, and Molly M in Florida. Again, Republican.org forward slash join. Stand with us. Also, please give us a review on iTunes. If you are listening and subscribing on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, give us five stars. We'll take four. We'll take whatever you want to give us. But also, if you write a uh, quick review, doesn't take it takes mere seconds. Uh, makes it easier for people to find us and helps bring more visibility to the podcast. We will take uh, all the help that we can get. And as we know and have said oftentimes, it's about our listeners. Thank you for downloading and subscribing, which you can do on all your favorite uh, Apple um, podcast platforms, iTunes. Again, Spotify is another great place to find us, um, and certainly republican.org forward slash podcast if you miss any. So, um, Chelsea, we'll, let's go ahead and break it there because we got to get ready for another big episode next week. That's right. Until then, <laughs> I will talk to you then. Talk to you soon, Price. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader. 